0: Our gospel lesson this morning is another parable and another mysterious one at that. And so I encourage you to center yourselves and prepare for these words of Jesus. Let us pray. God, we ask your blessing upon this reading of your word. Amen. This is Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Listen for the word of God for us this day. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and at about three o'clock, he did the same. And about five o'clock, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired at about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now, when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner saying, "'These last only worked one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat.' But he replied to one of them, "'Friend, Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we do indeed give you thanks this day for your word to us. We pray that you would reveal yourself to us in a new way this day. Amen. As Dr. Hegeman said, the parables are attractive for many reasons. They're also quite challenging for probably the same reasons. I think that part of what this approach to teaching, what makes this approach to teaching a bit different is that it involves both the mind and the heart and the feelings. And sometimes we can relate to various parts of these difficult to understand stories in ways that might even be different than the way that our neighbor understands them as well. Jesus uses emotion and as we connect with the text, We connect with our whole selves. I've mentioned this to some of you before, but one of my favorite methods of prayer that I turn to most often is called imaginative prayer, and it is a way of reading Scripture where we place ourselves within the text. Sometimes we're an observer, like an extra on a movie set, watching the story unfold before us. Other times, we might be one of the key players. We place ourselves into one of those roles, interacting directly with Jesus, talking with Jesus, imagining what it was like to be hearing those words spoken right to us. And still other times, we might just be ourselves, stepping into the scene as we try to understand what was happening. What were the sights, the smells, the sounds, And how do all of these things help us better know Jesus? We bring our questions to the scene, and we ask God our questions. As much as our reading of scripture continually shows us more about God and reveals more of Christ to us, I'm amazed though at how often scripture points to our characteristics, human characteristics, and elements of the human condition as they are just as relevant today as they were 2000 years ago. And I wonder then if our reactions are similar to those of the earliest hearers of scripture, especially in the parables, and maybe even especially in this parable. This parable has got to be one of the most unnerving parables for people to hear. And I wonder if it was as uncomfortable for people to hear then as it is now. But as unnerving as it is, it also absolutely reveals some parts of our human nature that seem to have been a part of the human story for a very long time. In fact, more than just the human story. Competition and comparisons of oneself to others and envy for what others have almost seems unavoidable. In some ways, it drives back to worth and our sense of self-worth and how we value ourselves and our work. And often it is based on how we perceive others as valuing us. We compare our homes, our jobs, the success even of our children we sometimes compare ourselves in the quiet privacy of our homes, but other times behind the backs of others in catty conversation. It starts as a young age, at a young age. I think kids pick up on this as well when they learn the art of comparison from their parents. And in some ways, this type of comparison is also an attempt at fairness. A desire for fairness. And in many ways we want to pull back the curtain and make sure that different people are being treated the same. And when we see that they aren't, and maybe especially when we see that we aren't, our reaction is dependent perhaps on where we are in the equity equation. This parable is strange in part because of the way that Jesus taps into these anxious feelings of fairness and comparison and value and worth and compensation, and specifically the knowledge of what someone else earns. When I was practicing law, I worked with several employers with policies that prohibited the sharing of salaries among workers. I wonder if you've heard of these so-called pay secrecy policies. The idea was that many employers didn't want their employees to know what different people were making. They didn't want them talking with one another about their income. Why? For the exact reason displayed in this morning's parable. Conflicts about worth and conflicts related to motivation of the labor force. Now, the interesting thing about these policies, whether they're written policies or simply practices by an employer, is that in most cases, they're illegal. For more than 80 years in this country, there have been laws that restrict the ability of employers to prohibit the sharing of wages among employees. And over the past several decades, there have been more and more laws supporting this, reiterating it. And I find this fascinating for a couple of reasons. First, that the government has specifically said that people can do this, they can share their wages. And second, that employers still tend to want to enforce these policies. But there's a third, initially perhaps less obvious thing that stands out to me. What about the workers themselves? It seems as though they're as content to not share their own salaries as they are to not know what their fellow workers are making. Perhaps it's out of fear, of fear, that it will cause that envy. It seems to be an ignorance is bliss type of situation. And there could be so many reasons for this, individual reasons for each person, but there's also something pretty universal to this concept of comparison, universal possibly even beyond our humanity. I watched a video recently of a TED talk by a primatologist named Franz de Waal. He studies primates and their social behavior. His talk was entitled Moral Behavior in Animals, in case you want to look it up. De Waal studies the ways that animals behave And from animal behavior, he seems to discover things about us, about humans as well. And one of his most famous studies dealt with fairness. Here's what the study consisted of. They put two capuchin monkeys side by side. And he tells the audience that these particular monkeys know each other well. They are used to living together in a group. He tells us that there's a very simple task that they need to do. And if the researchers give the the monkey a rock, the monkey, wait a minute, did I get it backwards? If you give both of the monkeys a piece of cucumber as a reward for giving you the rock, for completing the task, they're perfectly willing to do it 25 times in a row. But he says that if you give one of the monkeys a grape instead of a cucumber, you create an inequality between them because grapes are much more preferred to the monkeys. So that's the experiment they conducted. They have one monkey on the left, hand the researcher a rock, and to the monkey on the left, they give a piece of cucumber. The researcher gives them the piece of cucumber in exchange for the rock, and this happens again a couple of times, and the monkey eats the cucumber. The monkey on the right does the same task, hands a rock, and the researcher gives the monkey a grape. De has this to say. He says, the one who gets the first piece of cucumber is perfectly fine, the first piece she eats. Then she sees the other one getting a grape, so she gives a rock to us, that's the task. And we give her a piece of cucumber and she eats it. The other one needs to give us a rock and she does and she gets a grape and eats it. The other one sees that She gives a rock now to us again, and again gets a cucumber. And then the cucumber-receiving monkey throws the cucumber back at the researchers and pounds on the plexiglass of the cage repeatedly. The monkey stops performing the task once it knows that the reward isn't fair. And so you see there's this not just human but fundamental desire to be treated fairly. And so this parable at first glance is troubling for us. We may initially relate to that first hired worker, the one who was an early bird, ready to work and ready to earn the fair daily wage. And I wonder if when you were hearing When you are hearing this parable, if that's who you related to, if you found yourself relating to the early bird who at the end of the parable was waiting for everyone to get paid out and thinking maybe he'll get more. Maybe he'll get a proportionately higher wage. But quickly for those early workers, the story goes south. Rather than receiving proportionately more, they receive exactly what they were promised which turns out to be exactly the same as the workers who worked for just one hour. And they're told, take what belongs to you and go. The cucumber wasn't fair to them anymore, once compared with what someone else received for their work. Theologian John Shea writes that this reaction comes from a recording that is constantly running in our minds, a recording that goes something like this. If someone is getting what I am getting, but hasn't put in as much work as I have, I am being cheated. He asks, is there any other way to see this? Shea writes, most of us have this tape running continually. This makes us, in the language of the parable, grumble ready. I love that phrase grumble ready we're ready to grumble and it makes sense that we would be humans and it would seem monkeys are wired to view everything from our own point of view the point of view of our well-being if it's good for us we're excited but if it somehow demotes us or diminishes our work then like the early workers we cry out you have made them equal to us who have been who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But then the landowner's question comes back after reminding the early workers that they were paid exactly what they were promised. The questions back are hard to hear. Am I not allowed to choose to do what I will with what belongs to me? Or Are you envious because I am generous? Are you envious because I am generous? This, of course, is a translation from the Greek, and I actually looked up the Greek and was surprised by what I learned. Sometimes Greek phrases need to be interpreted, not just translated literally. Our biblical translations attempt to make sense of phrases in our our current context that otherwise wouldn't convey the meaning. But in this case, the Greek, when it's translated directly, means, is your eye evil because I am good? Is your eye evil because I am good? I see why the translators changed the question because our version, the way we read it, does make a little more sense. Are you envious? Because I am generous. But this idea of the eye becoming evil, the eye we get, which sees others in a way that sees them being treated better than we are, do our eyes become evil? Do our eyes become evil when we see the good that others may experience? I think there's power in both ways of hearing this question. And I wonder if we react in a similar way sometimes to the knowledge of God's goodness for all. How do we react to God's generosity? Because no matter how we slice this parable, and no matter how we try to look at it, and there are many interpretations we could have of this parable, It seems to be all about God's generosity. And it's a generosity that only God controls. It isn't about equal distribution or even fairness. It's about a God who extends grace and mercy, how God chooses to extend it. And this may be initially unsettling. And we may wanna throw that that cucumber back when we see someone else getting the grape. But this is one more example, one more example of the many examples we see in scripture, where God is turning the tables on our expectations, our expectations of God, and instead showing us again, that God is the one who controls grace, thank God, and not us. And that God, not us brings God's generous love even to those we think might be ones who are beyond God's reach. And thank God it is God who does that and not me. And I'll be honest, I have struggled with this at times in my life where I have asked God, how can you extend grace to this person? And yet it is not mine to extend. It is the grace of God. Thank God. Over and over again, and right in this very section of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is changing expectations. He's trying to explain what it means to receive grace and what it means to be undeserving of grace and what it means to be welcomed by God along with all the others who are welcomed by God. And this truly is good news, even when it doesn't feel fair. But the real question for us then, us individually, is how do we respond to God's goodness and grace, the undeserved goodness and grace that God has for us Does God's grace make us bristle and turn our ugly eye because we experience people in our lives who we think should be beyond God's grace? Or does God's goodness and grace cause us to give thanks and to learn to live in a way that reflects God's goodness and grace to a world that is filled with people so in need of knowing that they are loved? And I can't help but wonder if God is also calling us to live in the world in a way that lavishes grace on others. Grace that might look more like grapes, sharing resources with those who have less, caring for those who we might not even think are deserving. And so yes, this parable is about God's grace and grace is ultimately linked to salvation But perhaps this parable is also about the here and now. How is God calling you to live like God in how you, in how we as a church care for those in the valley and throughout the world, and people who we might think are undeserving? We don't know why some of those workers in the parable were hired later than others. We don't know their stories. What we know is that they were cared for and that their families were cared for. And God's grace upon grace is precisely what we are called to live and be. We do this through our involvement with local and global ministries, missions like Habitat for Humanity, which we heard about earlier from George. We do it through our mission giving, through our volunteer work at Andre House, serving food to those who are experiencing homelessness and food insecurity. This is grace upon grace. How might you in your life lavish grace upon grace? And as we reflect on our own lives, our own sin, our own failings, our own inadequacies, when we examine our own lives, Perhaps we recognize that instead of placing ourselves in the shoes of the early bird workers, perhaps we find ourselves as one of those workers hired at the end of the day. The ones who received that grace of a day's wage for that hour of work. When we find ourselves as ones who are in need of the generous grace of God, maybe then, maybe then it is that we look to Christ We see the eyes of Jesus with his arms outstretched, giving us our daily bread. And we say, thank God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.